greet you as Jews greet one another in Texas. We say shalom, y'all. <laughs> this morning, <laughs> yeah, yeah, last thing in the evening, the evening before, first thing in the morning, you can't get rid of me. Um, yeah, I saw some of you last night, you know, after that heavy meal at Kenny and Ziggy's, you know, you say, how was the presentation? Like a dream. <laughs> but, but this morning, I know you're alert and you're awake, and we've got a lot of uh, ground to cover, uh, because uh, uh, we're down to two sessions, and this is uh, first in the prophets, Messianic prophecy in the prophets. And we begin with Isaiah 7.14. Um, you know the story of 714. You've got Ahaz, and he's worried about a northern alliance coming down to, uh, uh, to wipe him out. And uh, Isaiah summons, through the word of God, Isaiah summons uh, Ahaz uh, and, and says, make sure you take your son, Shai Yeshuv, as well. And that's actually important because people get tripped up on this particular prophecy. Uh, and uh, uh, the crux of the Messianic prophecy involves... King Ahaz's decline of the king's offer, of the Lord's offer rather, for a miraculous sign of divine favor. So let's take a look, starting in verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. In other words, to reassure yourself that what Isaiah is saying is true, ask for a sign <coughs> and make it as deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. In other words, biggie size that sign. Soup to nuts, okay? Go, go nuts with this, uh, with your ask, because God's delivering today, so uh, you might as well go for it. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord, which is a... <laughs> A ridiculous refusal. It's false piety. God said, ask. And King Ahaz says, well, no thank you. I, I don't think I'll do it. I don't think I'll do it. So what happens? Then Isaiah says, listen now, O house of David. What's important to note in this passage is that we have a transition from addressing Ahaz, and of course if we had spent you know, time looking at the beginning of the chapter and going all the way through, we'd see very much so that Isaiah is addressing in the singular uh, King Ahaz and everything is addressed to him specifically. We shift in 13 to the house of David. Isaiah is no longer addressing Ahaz, he's now addressing the house of David, and his uh, yous will now become y'alls, okay, or as we say in New York, yous, uh, plural of you, okay, it's very difficult to see in, uh, in, in English, it's obscured, it says, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well, note, that Isaiah refers to the Lord now not as a generic Lord or the Lord or God or your God as he has addressed in the previous uh, verse is now my God because apparently uh, it's, it's not Ahaz's. His refusal makes it very clear it's not his God. So, you're trying the patience of God. Therefore, here's what God's going to do. You won't ask for a biggie-sized sign. 
God's going to give you a biggie size. My God is going to give you a biggie size sign. They're supersized, no extra charge. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold. How would you translate behold if you weren't using that word behold? Anyone? Well, look is a little, a little light. Okay, listen up. Uh, heads up, right? Uh, it's the kind of thing when you, re- when you really want to get someone's attention. Yeah, look. But right, when you see behold, it is a heads up. Here it comes. Incoming. Okay? And in this instance, it's incoming message from God. This is what God's going to do. Here's the sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And it actually is the article. It's the virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. The Hebrew, because it is in plural, it is certain that more than one temporal king is being addressed here. Ahaz is only being addressed in so far as he's the designated representative of the Davidic dynasty. And the context uh, tells us that with this large sign, it will be in some way the birth to the virgin, a virgin of a child, and his name will be designated Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Not to be confused with the song that many of us sing in our worship song, which everybody pronounces Emmanuel. I don't know who that is. That might be somebody, but, but Emmanuel is the designation. And of course, this prophecy is famously controversial. And discussion has raged for centuries over Isaiah's use of the Hebrew word translated here as virgin, Alma and not Batula to mean a virgin. Have you, have you heard that argument before? If Isaiah had meant to say, you know, it's, it's always this, you know, high, if Isaiah had meant to I know so much Hebrew and you foolish people just reading in English, if he had meant to say virgin, he would have used the term that is a, a technical term for a virgin called Betula. He used Alma and he should have used Betula, Betula, Betula blah, 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 uh, Betula. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I, I, I do want to show you verse 15, which is where people get tripped up, okay? Um, um, verse 15, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. This is the, the food of poverty. Uh, and so this, this individual, okay, let's not call him Messiah. Let's just call him an individual uh, who's a big sign uh, by the name of God with us. Uh, and uh, he's going to arrive at a time when the nation of Israel is oppressed. It's obviously not this time. Okay, That's the whole point with the curds or butter, whatever it may be. This is uh, not royal food. This is food of poverty, of oppression. Um, and then, of course, verse 16, which we're not going to look at here, uh, is addressed to Sha'ar Yeshuv. We move back from uh, the sign to the house of David, uh, and we go to back to Sha'ar Yeshuv. If you think about it, it's like kind of like a, 
a biggie sign sandwich. We start with one piece of bread, which is the address to Ahaz, uh, and then we get to the address and the prophecy to the house of David, and we close, we conclude the section with going back to Ahaz and closing that loop, making a nice top to your sandwich, and then you can digest it. Well, let's go back to this. Let's go back to this Alma uh, and Betula uh, controversy, because I think this will be, I, I think, somewhat helpful. We'll take a few minutes uh, to look at this. Um, Alma, okay, has anybody done any study on the words Alma and Betula? Okay, anyone? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, okay, a few of you. Um, you can take five, uh, <laughs> since you've already done this work. Um, Alma occurs six, of the, six other times in the Hebrew Bible, and it does not ever unambiguously mean virgin. What does it mean? It means a young, i.e. post-pubescent or adolescent woman of a marriageable age. So not a virgin per se, but someone who very likely in this culture was. Older women, whether or not they're virgins, uh, could not be almas. Only young women of marriageable age. Virgin, you see, is too restricted a meaning. Well, young woman, well, that's too broad. And, you know, if you combine them, young broad, well, that's definitely too broad. Um, <laughs> But the thing is, <laughs> are you awake now? Okay, good. Uh, back in the times of the Bible, people simply, this is, the, this is Jewish culture, people simply did not go around categorizing other people by their sexual experience or inexperience. Unlike today, it would have been assumed that an unmarried, post-pubescent or adolescent girl would have been a virgin. If she were not, she would have been dead, according to Torah, right? It's kind of an easy guess. You see a young, unmarried uh, woman, she's a virgin in Israel's uh, uh, society. Plus, I think the, the whole controversy over this particular verse is kind of sexist. And I can prove it, because there's a masculine counterpart related to the word Alma, Elem, right? And that's a young man of marriageable age. And Elem, or an Elem, is a young man of marriageable age. It only occurs, granted, it only occurs two times in the Bible, both in 1 Samuel 17, 56 and 20 and 22. Uh, and uh, you'll see how ridiculous it would be uh, to, to assume, you, you can't assume that uh, Alma means young woman who is sexually experienced uh, in the same way that there's, uh, if you're a man, okay, let me uh, uh, take us back to the days of 1 Samuel 17 with uh, King Saul looking at uh, David. And the king said, 1 Samuel 17, 56, the king said, you go inquire whose son this youth is. So youth, that's a good translation. Whose son is this youth? Well, how about if we said, Whose son is this virgin? Right? It's the same. That's what the word means. It's a young man of marriageable age, right? But we would translate it as youth, understanding he's a virgin, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be specified. So you could actually translate young woman, Alma as young woman, and everybody would understand, yes, virgin. Okay, how ridiculous it would be if we started reading uh, 1 Samuel, uh, the king's asking, go find out whose son that virgin is. 
That's a completely different color on the story, right? <laughs> or how about, remember when, when uh, uh, David is with Jonathan and, uh, you know, you got, the sh- you got the arrows shooting as a sign. Is it safe to come? Is it safe? You got to run. And Jonathan gives a signal, right? So if I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are beyond you. Go before the Lord, because the Lord has sent you away. So can you imagine David and Jonathan having this conversation? But if I say to the virgin, Behold, the arrows are beyond you. Go far, for the Lord has sent It's a ridiculously sexist uh, point. How foolish it would sound if we read virgin there. But of course it would be understood because young men would have been virgins if they were not uh, uh, married. And then uh, young women, of course, the same idea. Now let's go back to betula. Uh, betula, it is not a technical term for virgin. It simply also, like Alma, means young woman maiden. It's used 50 times in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, even within Jewish translations, it's translated mostly, mostly as maiden. Um, for example, if betula was the, uh, betula were the uh, universally understood technical Hebrew term for virgin, then why does the term need qualification in Genesis 24, 16? You remember the guys looking, the servant of Abraham looking for Rebekah. Verse 16 of 24 says, The girl was very beautiful, a betulah, and no man had relationships with her. No man had had relations with her. Well, if betulah is a technical term for virgin, why does it need qualification? No man had had relations with her. That's the kind of betulah. She's a young woman. In other words, betula also, likewise, mean, sometimes that means virgin, but basically it's another alternative. You know what? Very rarely in a language do you have only one word and there's no synonyms, there's no anything else that you can use uh, for variety. One word technically and one word there technically. Nonsense. Or how about, uh, um, behold, 40, verse 43 of the same chapter. Behold, I stand by the well of water and it shall come to pass... When the Alma comes to draw water, I will say to her, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. So in the same story, she's called both a Betula and an Alma. And the whole point is that he's looking for a girl to uh, bring back to his boss's son, right? He's looking for a, looking for a wife. Uh, how about this one, Isaiah 23? Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea speaks the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither travailed nor given birth. I have neither brought up young men nor reared virgins. Okay? Young men or women would be the, the, the uh, uh, normal way to read that, unless betula is a technical term, which means virgins. Right? How about this one, Ezekiel 9, 6? Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch the man on whom is my mark, and you shall start from my sacrifice. So let's slay old men, young men, little children, women, and go and virgins, right? It's maidens, it's young women who are virgins, right? How about Job? This is familiar. We say this, we teach our young, young people. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a virgin? I will not look upon a virgin. Uh, that's unreasonable search and seizure, right? I, I, I will not look upon a young woman, right? A young woman. Um, lament. This is, I love this one, Joel 1.8. Lament. Like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. 
Think about that for a moment. Clamant for the virgin, for the husband of her youth. How could she be a virgin if she has a... So betulah is not a technical term for the uh, term virgin. There is no word, in fact, in the entire biblical Hebrew vocabulary that means virgin in the technical sense. The categorization of individuals by their sexual experience or inexperience, not a Jewish predilection. It's only once we get to the Latin that we have specific language, the term virgo intacta, all right, well, enough about this particular <laughs> issue. By the way, did you know that sharks can uh, reproduce uh, alone? Uh, it was uh, until, 2007, <laughs> until 2007, you know, nobody thought that vertebrates, you know, this is how science, you know, listen, listen, the more you know, you want science, listen, or, you know, you just want to, um, vertebrates, 2007, it was discovered that uh, the process of parthenogenesis, virgin birth, uh, scientists were sure until 2007 that vertebrates was impossible to uh, have a virgin birth. But, well, sharks proved it. So bird, uh, sharks do it, uh, Marys do it, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, well, whatever. Let's go to the uh, fulfillment. But when he considered, because you know why we laugh, okay? But I am, I'm crying at how many of our faithful believers and teachers have jettisoned Isaiah 7, 14 as a messianic prophecy. It is, uh, it, it's, it's sad, it's shameful, and, uh, and I, I won't let that particular issue of the Betula Alma distinction, I, I cannot let that one stand. I just can't. Um, because I, 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 I've heard it all my life, uh, and, and you probably have too. So now you have a little bit of ammunition. Uh, but Matthew one twenty, of course, this is the fulfillment, the recognition, uh, starting in verse 21, she will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, behold, the virgin shall be with child. And certainly the Septuagint translates the word uh, betula into Greek as uh, parthenos, as virgin. And this is prior to the time of Jesus. It was accepted prior to the time of the New Testament that this was uh, uh, to be understood as a virgin. So let's go to Isaiah 9. We have, a, uh, I call Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. It's kind of like a trifecta of messianic prophecy. Uh, a, a trilogy, if you will, because they are connected, right? So it's kind of like Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's got exciting stuff. And, you know, and you start here and then it builds here and then it uh, climaxes here. Well, Isaiah 9, 1 is the first of uh, three passages, or a second of three passages, 7, 9, 11. Uh, craps. Uh, but uh, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times... I know, some of you are still sleeping. You'll get it later. Uh, the, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Later on, he will make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who 
live in darkness. Walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So there is oppression (coughs) revealed in this passage. And it's in the northern part of Israel, Galilee, the tribal area of Zebulun, Naphtali. It's in anguish. They walk in darkness. Light will shine. And the concept of light, very, very important, we'll see in the rest of Isaiah regarding the Messiah and in the New Testament's use of uh, the Messiah. This contrast of this was dark, and now because you've come, light. So the people who walk to see a great light, okay, those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. In case you didn't get the first part of the Hebrew parallelism, they give you the, uh, the, uh, the, another way to say it. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Hot diggity dog, in other words. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Of course, when Isaiah, intertextual reference, when Isaiah mentioned the battle of Midian, what are you, whom are you supposed to think of? Gideon, Gideon right? And thank God those words rhyme, because <laughs> otherwise, you know, we might have trouble. But right, even kids can remember them, Gideon and Midian. Right, but the, the reference is Gideon, someone unexpected, and in a very unexpected way, truly unexpected, and shall we say, pardon the expression, unorthodox uh, uh, way, um, Gideon won the victory. Um, And so too will the coming of this messianic king be. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for fire. He is going to be some warrior. When this guy comes, watch out, because he is uh, going to be uh, super, super at war. And here we go, the famous one. This is, again, Christmas card. Don't let its familiarity lull you into a sense of complacency. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Don't, don't let that pass. A son, this child is born, but he's a gift. He's given to us. Who's us? Israel. Isaiah's people, given to us. Who gave them to us? Who's going to give them to us? God. This is a gift from God. It's carrying over the thread of the Emmanuel prophecy, this this, uh, God with us fellow. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called, you know, I used to love uh, this song. I used to sing it as, actually, my, my aunt, great aunt Hilda, um, used to, uh, <laughs> this is my early, this is how I got my uh, start in my career. Uh, she would parade me on a chair and, uh, behind the podium, you know, like this, uh, from the age of four. Uh, and I would sing uh, songs uh, uh, in the congregation, you know, sing special songs, you know, and one of the ones that she liked for me to sing, not at four, you know, uh, that was more like, down in the dumps, I'll never go, right? Uh, but uh, it was, his name is wonderful, right? Uh, <laughs> um, but you don't have, like the hymn, five names here, you actually have four designations. And they are wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. We'll talk about them in a second. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. You know, before I go further, 
There will be no end to the increase of his government. Oh, you know what that makes me think of? The Davidic covenant, right? I'm always looking. From the time that the Davidic covenant is announced in in the first chronicles and second samuel i'm looking for this how are we going to have this immortal descendant how are we going to have this undi- un, uh, undying uh, kingdom and eternal throne and all so when i see this i think oh maybe this is going to give me a clue as to how the davidic covenant is going to play out there'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of death oh isaiah actually thank you isaiah because you've now firmly now associated this prophecy with the Davidic covenant and the ultimate son of David. Good, because that's what I was thinking of, and now you've confirmed it. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. You know, and isn't it interesting to see some of those themes? Remember some of those uh, psalms last night that we studied that were so invested in describing the rule and reign of the messianic son of David, the, 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 the king to come, that his righteousness is char- or the kingdom will be characterized by righteousness and justice and peace. Exactly what we see here in Isaiah. From then on and forevermore. Well, how then shall this be? Oh, Isaiah tells us, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So, <coughs> what's happening here? Well, the prophet is telling that a Davidic son is going to be born to the Jewish people. And, of course, this builds on the Emmanuel God with us. It's clear that that's true by the fact that the son has given four remarkable characteristic designations. And he is called Peleoetz. Wonderful counselor. This is um, a strategist par excellence. Some of you, um, uh, what is the, uh, uh, those of you into politics, what is the counselor to the president called? Every president's got a counselor of some sort. What's it called? Advisor, special advisor to the president, special counsel to the president, right? And this counselor, right, uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes you bring in somebody else. Our current president has brought in some family members, uh, apparently. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, um, you have the idea of a strategist. For those of you who like movies, you know, uh, The Godfather had a consigliere. And this was a counselor. Who gave the who gave the Godfather uh, strategy and let's talk it through, let's think it through. This is what will happen, and so this individual will need no special advisor to the Messiah. He'll need no consigliere. He will be his own consigliere. He will be his own counselor, and it will be wonderful. Peleoets. He will be a strategist par excellence. But he's also, oops, El Gibor. And El Gibor, mighty God, uh, this exact phrase is used of God just a few sections later in chapter 10, verse 24. So if you want to be consistent, we can't explain this way as hyperbole because Isaiah used it in the same way as, as, as actually God. Mighty God is God. So this guy will be a wonderful strategist, a mighty strategist, a counselor. He will be... Somehow mighty God, El Gibor? Uh, I'm a little confused by that, but, oh, well then I have no confusion left over by the time I get to the third designation, Aviad. 
father of eternity. There's no human individual that can have these two names in combination. One, two, right? Um, except a God-man. Something, something related to deity here. This is a God-man. And then finally, Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. This is, how do you become the Prince of Peace? How do you become the Sar Shalom? By the way, any of you in Dallas on Saturday mornings, 10.30, my congregation called Beth Sar Shalom, the house of the Prince of Peace. Um, how does one become the Prince of Peace? Well, for those of you who remember a previous president who made a big thing about peace through strength, and it worked, um, that's how you do it. And so you see, in a sense, there is... You know, I hate finding chiasms, right? A, A, B, B, A. But here we have, um, I, I think more in terms of sandwiches. Um, so you have, you have the, the, the wonderful counselor, the piece of bread uh, on the top, the strategist par excellence, which results in him establishing peace, right? The whole preceding passage is all about, well, it's going to be a battle like Gideon, and it's going to be pretty overwhelming, and it's going to be amazing, and he is going to, he's going to establish peace by wiping out any enemies. Overwhelming victory. So those two go together. Peleuetz, Sar Shalom. And in the center is the not-so-secret ingredient. He is not just a man. He's also God. And that is indeed mysterious, but it plays out throughout the rest of the prophets as they build on it. So God himself will establish this royal child, Emmanuel, born of a virgin, who will sit on the throne of his father David and exercise just and righteous rule over the Jewish people for eternity as the father of eternity. Um, I find it curious, frankly, for me. Uh, that the New Testament authors don't make greater use of this passage in their apologetic approach to Israel. We just see it here in Matthew, and maybe that's enough. This was to fulfill what was spoken of through Isaiah the prophet, and he's quoting uh, the uh, beginning of uh, Isaiah 9. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, fa- it's just a fact that other passages take pride of place in the apostles' evangelistic presentations, but nonetheless... I believe this is a very potent passage that powerfully demonstrates the mysterious union between the two natures, human and divine, within one individual Messiah. Let's move on. Whoops. Oh, actually, I did want to bring this up to you. Um, Not only does Matthew quote, and he he doesn't just give you one line. He doesn't just give you this line here uh, and tease you with it. He gives you a healthy portion. He gives you a... I guess you could say it's a Ziggy and Kenny-sized portion of the Old Testament to demonstrate his point, and he punctuates it with the action. Don't miss the fa- don't leave it with the quotation and move on as if it's a new section. He punctuates it with the action here of uh, what it means for this Messiah to have come. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." So uh, Jesus is acting in light with his. Uh, resume, if you will. Uh, in Luke, we have the song of Zacchaeus, uh, of uh, Zacharias, rather. Zacchaeus, that's a different song. Uh, <laughs> well, 
How's that one go? There was a little bit. Anyway, um, now I have the song stuck in my head. Thanks a lot. Well, these verbal slips. But uh, Zechariah, the son, the uh, father of John the Baptist, uh, one of the things he says here, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise. I'm not talking about light. Light is so important. That's the word Anatole. It's a, well, it normally means the, to the east, you know, or, um, but it could, it just, it could also mean rising. Like you could have sunrise as in light, a great light as has, has, has shining in reference to Isaiah. Uh, it could be a rising star uh, in reference to uh, the, the prophecy of Balaam from uh, the fourth oracle in Numbers 24. But nonetheless, so don't, just think this is poetry, uh, with which the sunrise from on high, the Anatolia from on high, will visit us to shine, and this is why I think it's light, because he's quoting this, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Let's move to Isaiah 11, the third of the trilogy, the third of the trifecta, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Ruach of Jehovah, covenant God, will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord. These are not just terms to rush through to get to some action. The, the action's here. The spirit of the Lord is characterizing who he is and what his ministry is going to be like, what his rule as mighty king uh, will be like. He'll be wise and understanding. He's already been called Pele Yoetz, wonderful counselor, counsel, and strength because he's the Sar Shalom, the prince of peace, the great warrior, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Uh, this is how we know he has wisdom and understanding because the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or make a decision by what his ears hear. In fact, the, the rabbis read this. Talk about creative exegesis, right? The rabbis looked at that and said, okay, because it says that he will not, delight, uh, will not judge by what his eyes uh, see or decide by his ears, so he's going to judge by sniffing. He's going to have an <laughs> elevated sense of smell. I kid you not. I kid you not. Uh, that is uh, one of the rabbinic passages. But, you know, that... Let, let's be honest, at least they're giving a close reading to the passage and taking it uh, literally, right? They're actually looking at it. Uh, but with righteousness, he'll judge the poor. So again, the idea of righteousness and justice, the, the idea of jettisoning unfairness and allowing money to or, or, or prestige or power to influence his ruling, um, decide with fairness. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. I've heard of hanging judges. But uh, this, uh, strike the earth with the rod. His word will be powerful. The breath of his lips slay the... So his righteousness, his justice will indeed be just. And it will be fair. He'll be just. He'll be fair. He'll rule with righteousness. You know what we don't see regarding this individual? We don't see somebody saying, you know what you need in a perfect uh, judge? You need the, the quality of empathy. You need... 
you need ethnic background, you need, you know, no, he's Jewish, uh, and he's, and he's, and he's, uh, the king of the Jews, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's not his ethnicity that makes him, uh, righteous and just. It's not his empathy, it's who he is. It's the quality of his character. He is perfect righteousness and perfect justice. And righteousness will be so righteous as, how righteous is he? That you could say he girds up, he girds up his loins with uh, righteousness. Faithfulness. That's how you tie it off with the buckle. And uh, we have this passage, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, calf of the young lion, the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. And other descriptions to follow of a kingdom characterized by such peace that Stuff is happening to the animal kingdom as well. Something is happening that is going far beyond just humanity. It's influencing the animal kingdom as well. There is peace, there is safety, there is security, there's righteousness, there's justice. It's just like what was described by the Davidic covenant, right? A period of unprecedented, never before seen, uh, safety, security, um, unshakable kingdom. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that nation, in that day, now lest you think that the Messiah uh, only has eyes for Israel, um, you're brought into this as well. Gentiles brought into this as well. In that day, thank, right, I praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord. Then in that day, because you know, you, you look at some of these passages and sh- I can only imagine how ethnocentric they look to some, right? But just as soon as you see, oh, well, Israel's getting all the blessings. Israel's getting all the goodies. Um, You get a verse like this that reminds you, oh, no, no, no. There's plenty for all to share the glories of our Messiah. In that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, tying this individual to the Davidic covenant, who is the root of Jesse to David, right? Who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. So this passage is, is super because you've got the beginning that views the, the, uh, the tree of the house of David as being cut down. Just a stump. Just a stump left. Uh, looks like it's curtains for the house of David. It's fallen on hard times. There's no, this guy is going to come when only a, a stump is there. But a shoot will spring from what looks like it's dead. You ever cut down a tree in your yard? If you go to Israel, you'll see this a lot. You see uh, old pieces of olive tree, you know, that are just the stumpers in the ground, and whoop, there's a shoot, and there's a shoot, here a shoot, there a shoot, everywhere a shoot. Um, there's still life in them, their uh, uh, stump, and that's exactly what we see here. A branch, netzer, from his roots, will bear fruit. This humble stump. It's so humble. Davidic line has, has fallen on such hard times, he doesn't even use David's royal name here, Right? goes to the father, Jesse. But the humble stump of the Davidic line, no matter how modest in appearance, is described as still possessing healthy life force and brings forth a fresh new shoot, a fruit-bearing branch, the messianic descendant of David. Right? So very, very important. 
So the passage describes the time the Messianic reign is characterized by ultimate perfect peace, a period of worldwide nations, spiritual awareness, and of course those extraordinary changes within the animal kingdom concerning the abrogation of predatory instincts. And uh, of course the branch is a well-worn messianic term that finds its initial usage here. Uh, Netzer and then other uh, prophets like Jeremiah, uh, they may use the term uh, Samech, uh, Zechariah, yeah. Uh, Sam, but nonetheless, the idea of a branch. Let's see the New Testament. You, whoop. Oh, okay. I don't know why I don't have any New Testament usage there. Let's see if I have anything here. Yes, of course. Um, and this is very, very important. Matthew ties the uh, Isaiah prophecy, the branch, with Jesus' birthplace. Now, I have to, full disclaimer, um, Michael Radelnik, uh, the author of Messianic Hope, really good book, um, he would use this as an illustration of uh, summation, uh, this is fulfilled prophecy by way of summation. Uh, the Messiah is despised, the Messiah is uh, not respected, uh, whatever. So uh, when we see Matthew uh, uh, 2.23, uh, that they came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So in other words, because uh, uh, he is uh, not respected, uh, he'll come from a place that's not respected. And so it's kind of a summary. There's not, no direct quote anywhere. Um, that's one of the areas I disagree with, uh, with uh, Michael. Um, I believe that this is a wordplay, and he's using this as a specific wordplay, uh, because remember, the branch is a netzer, and so Netzeret is the uh, is the city of Nazareth. So he came and be, lived in a city called Nazareth to fulfill. He shall be called a Nazarene, Matthew two twenty three. He is a netzer from Netzeret, okay, which I guess is. The equivalent, the ancient Israelite equivalent of being an Oki from Muskogee. Uh, it, it's a wordplay, okay? It's the kind of stuff that would get the attention of the readers and that would actually, uh, that would actually carry some heft in, uh, in, in making a connection between the idea of Netzer and Netzeret. You'd have to think a little bit, you'd understand the wordplay, okay? So, Jesus arrived in a very select period in history when Israel dwelt in the land without being ruled by a son of David, but under the domination of a Gentile power, just as we find in the beginning of this passage. By that time, the house of David reduced to nothing. And the Gospels reveal how in Jesus, the Davidic stump was to be restored to holy grandeur. Let's move on. Isaiah 42, and here we begin the servant songs. We move from the first portion of Isaiah and to the second half where there's also, just as the first half is replete with action, so too we have a hefty amount of action in what we call these servant songs. Uh, um, these span from uh, Isaiah 42 through 66, and we'll just take a look at a few of these uh, today and uh, see how far we get, and we'll finish that up tonight and uh, move on as far as we can get. Um, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit, my ruach, upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Well, this sounds good because it's familiar language. Got it. It, it sounds like what we've seen before in the, both the Psalms and in the early parts of Isaiah. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard. 
in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Well, I thought this guy's coming like Gideon and Midian. I thought this guy's the wonderful counselor. I thought he's going to uh, uh, punish his enemies, and he's going to uh, make a lot of noise. Uh, but apparently there's something else going on here, or maybe we're describing uh, um, a part of his biography, and uh, the other part is another part of his biography. It, it can be confusing, you see. Right? A bruised reed will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. It seems like we're describing um, two different people. Is that possible? Two different people. Um, is it possible that um, first one will occur, first, then the second part will occur? Uh, it's, it's mysterious, you see. Um, maybe, maybe it will be uh, if we, Israel, are worthy, we'll get uh, um, one kind of Messiah, if we are found unworthy, we'll get another. Maybe we'll get a peaceful guy. Maybe we'll get a violent guy. It's mysterious, you see. A bruised reed will not break. A a dimly burning wick will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed. Well, you know what? When you tell me that someone is going to not be disheartened or crushed until, that is an indication to me that at some point he will be disheartened or crushed. I wonder why. He'll not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. How many coastlands are there in Israel? A single coastland, right? That's one Mediterranean coastland. Um, the coastlands, it's nations. Okay, the islands, the nations, the... Um, other nations. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, spirit to those who walk on it. That's a heck of an introduction. This is, wow, this is what God says. And this is what he's like. I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. Covenant name. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. It's not Israel, by the way. uh, It can't be Israel, because Israel has never been uh, uh, that demure as described earlier here. Uh, and uh, uh, has never succeeded in its calling to be a covenant, uh, a light to the nations and opening blind eyes and doing all these things. The Messiah, however, this does apply to him. He is a living embodiment of God's covenant. He is a representation of God's covenant, of God's contract to the people, to the people of Israel, and a light to the nations, that's the Gentiles, the coastlands, to do what? Good stuff, good news, gospel you might even say, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Why? Darkness? Emphasis on light. We've seen light, light, light uh, previously. We're talking about the same person. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before, I spring, before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. This is most assuredly a prophetic word. 
That's punctuated by, pay attention, God is saying. I declare new things before they happen. Uh, because it's going to get confusing. It seems, it seems that God is, is giving us a heads up. Things might get a little bit confusing. But pay attention to what I tell you is coming in the future. I am sending someone who is going to be a living covenant. He's new. He's fresh. You might think of it as an embodiment of a new covenant, if you will, um, before they spring forth. Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Jesus, aware, with this, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was to fulfill what was spoken of through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, whom my soul is, my beloved whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit. He's quoting the passage that we just looked at. And 49, of course, is very similar to this. But look at the punctuation here for Matthew is verse 21. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. He's not just the Mashiach of Israel. He is the hope of the nations. Hope of Israel. Light to the world, right? It's extraordinary. Hope of the Gentiles as well. Oh, how about, remember the presentation of, uh, of, of Jesus in the temple, right? Uh, Pinyan Haben, the redemption of the firstborn, Jewish ceremony. And uh, old uh, Simeon says, let me see this kid. Let me take a look. And he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So it's not really a surprise that Gentiles come to faith. I mean, it's it's shocking, but... (laughs) No offense, <laughs> but, but, but nonetheless, it seems to be baked into the recipe from the very beginning, right? Um, and Simeon is recognizing this going back to Isaiah 42. And uh, of course, now this is uh, a use by Barnabas and Paul of this particular passage to say, we're, we're not the fulfillment of this, Jesus was the fulfillment, but because we're his apostles, because we're his followers, um, we're going to apply. That's one of the ways to fulfill a prophecy, to apply it, application. And so uh, they apply this to them, uh, to themselves. It placed you as a light. The Lord has commanded us. I've placed you as light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. All right. Isaiah 49. We'll just finish with this one. This is a second servant song that's written in the first person. And it records the words of Messiah himself. And it's related to 42. There's a lot of overlap, but this is very, very important. And it's addressed, first of all, to guess who? To the Gentiles. Listen to me, O islands. So I guess with special attention to New Zealand and Hawaii. Um, but listen to me, O oh, islands. In other words, as far as you can go out, okay? So not just the places, you know, I mean, of course, that also would include uh, Crete and, uh, and uh, Cyprus. Uh, but listen to me, O oh, islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. So in other words, use, okay? <laughs> use guys from afar, you Gentiles. Voice of the Messiah. 
The Lord called me from the womb. His mission was given prior to birth. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he's made me a select arrow, hidden me in his quiver. I love this description because it's like he's saying, I'm God's secret weapon, right? See, see those, those arrows, you know, that everybody, okay, well, but I got a special super duper arrow that I'm keeping in reserve. And when I bring it forth, watch out, right? I'm a select arrow hidden in the quiver of God. And he said to me, again, still the voice of the Messiah, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. So some read this and say, well, look, see, you see, it's, it's Israel. It's the nation of Israel. It's not uh, a messianic psalm at all. Uh, not so. Um, Jesus I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. The Messiah, this messianic figure, is the very personification of the nation of Israel. He's super Israel, ultimate Israel, uber Israel, if you will. Um, and he's going to reveal God's glory and his identity and mission as ultimate Israel. You are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. And we'll see that because... Part of his mission is going to be to Israel. Just part. Uh, but I said, I've toiled in vain. Seems to be that there's some discouragement. For some reason, his mission has not been successfully received. I spent my strength for nothing and vanity. And the vain and the vanity together, parallel. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is with God. So such is his faith in God that he manages to retain a correct divine perspective regardless of his discouragement. And, well, didn't we see somewhere else that he might be discouraged, there might be some discouragement along the way? In the previous passage, 42, right, exactly. I've spent my strength, okay, uh, surely the justice due me with the Lord, my reward is with my God. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb. Here comes God's response. Now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob... Who is Jacob? We saw this in, uh, in Luke yesterday, right? Jacob is another name for Israel. So the ultimate Israel is going to bring Jacob, Israel, back. And in fact, I think he uses two different terms so as to avoid confusion to bring Jacob back to them. And then he uses the term Israel, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. So the Lord's, uh, Messiah's mission, the servant's mission, summarized in three succinct points. First, the Messiah was to sound a clarion call for Israel to repent, to return to God. So job number one in this job description, bring Jacob back to God. Gather Israel back to the Lord. And by the way, I will be honored through this 
because my God is my strength. And then he will, having called them to return, second point will be to regather them in the land. It's a prerequisite for the regathering of Israel to the land. And here we have the final point in the job description. He, God, says to the servant, to the Messiah. <coughs> you know, I've been thinking about it. It's in the original Hebrew. It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones to Israel. So what I told you to do, call for repentance, return to me and regather them to the land. So it's, that's too small of a... For a guy like you, for my son, for a son like you, you got a lot more in you than just returning Israel. It's a small job, right, for a guy like you. It's too small a thing. So here's, here's going to be a Messiah-sized job for you as well. I'll make you a light of the nations so that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. That is quite a significant statement for an 8th century Hebrew document, I think. The servant to be a light to the Gentiles. Gentile salvation reaching all the way to the ends of the earth. Now that is a job description worthy of my son, the servant. But then things change. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised... Wait wait a second. What am I, my son, my, my, my servant, I got great things for you. But now the Lord continues His address and He calls this Messianic figure three names. The despised one, the one abhorred, not by the nations, which was just referenced, but by the singular nation. What singular nation? Israel, of course. And the servant of rulers. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and following to the the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Although the servant will experience, very clearly, will experience rejection, the rejection will be temporary. How come? Pourquoi? Not because people will eventually get a clue to his identity or status of their own accord, but because of the faithfulness of the Lord, of Jehovah, who has chosen his servant. In fact, I had... This is a question I had last night from someone uh, in the other room. Uh, it's always this theoretical, well, what if Israel had accepted the Messiah? And, you know, what would have happened with it? You know, we, we all, you know, play what ifs, right? Um, but here's an answer to the what ifs. Right? Common misnomer to assume that it would have been possible for any more than of a remnant to have recognized Messiah in his first advent. Isaiah reveals that could never have been the case, right here in the text. Would you like confirmation 
That Jesus is the true Messiah? Okay, here's your confirmation. He was rejected wholesale by Jewish leadership. The representatives of the nation. You know Jesus is the Messiah because he was rejected. He's only rejected as Messiah. And only then is he killed. You have a guy like Bar Kokhba. You know, we talked about him, I guess, yesterday, um, who was hailed as the Messiah, son of the star, right? Um, you know why he was rejected as Messiah? He got killed. He couldn't have been the Messiah. So Israel rejected him. Every Messiah other than Jesus failed, was rejected because they were killed or they wiped out. Jesus is the only Messianic figure who was rejected first and killed because of it. That's specifically why he was killed. All right, you know, I think we have to stop um, we're going to pick it up uh, this evening. Uh, talk about sandwiches. You've got a Steve sandwich today, uh, morning and evening. Uh, are there any questions? I don't know if we have one question. You have a question. Okay. You're entitled. Okay. In this verse, why is nation goy and it's an arthrus? Yeah, it is. Uh, you know what? I didn't hear a single oh, okay. thing you said. One abhorred by the nation. That's the English. Looks yes. definite. It's an arthrus in the Hebrew. And it's Goy. Why is it Goy? Um, it's a single nation. It's single okay. nation. So Goy can be the nation of Israel. Okay. Can be, yes. Okay. And the That's reason, a great question. But the reason it's, it's an Arthur's is? Uh, because it's the, na- it's, it's okay. the single nation. Okay. You don't, you don't need the uh, you don't need the Ha Goy. Yeah, yeah. You don't okay. need the Ha. Okay. Ha Ha. Ha Ha Ha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Question over here. Because contextually it's... it's uh, it's uh, contrasted with the nations, plural. Steve, great presentation. Thank you. And um, I think the Isaiah 49 passage you just went over is really powerful. And uh, it, it surprises me that that's not used more, um, really. But the question I had is, um, it says that he will be uh, the despised one by the nation. Yes. And I know that the... I've heard the strongest argument against, um, you know, for example, Isaiah 53, which unfortunately tonight I won't be here to hear that for you to get into that, um, is the righteous among the nations, uh, you know, being that the, the remnant uh, of Israel is the servant of the Lord. Um, and so do they try to use that for this? Because it seems like it doesn't work. Because if you make the, the, the righteous remnant among Israel as the servant of the Lord rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, as the you know, counter-missionary rabbis do, um, it seems like it doesn't work to the one abhorred by the nation because the righteous among the nation are revered. They're not abhorred. I believe you've <laughs> answered your own question, young man. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it does, uh, the, the, answer, the short answer is, yeah, every servant song um, is attempted uh, by uh, obscureness and, and you know, by many translators. They want to make it all... Uh, reference of Israel. And Israel is doing ministry to Israel and it, it, it never works, okay? It, it breaks down uh, because contextually it makes no sense. You wind up with uh, so, a, a text that is nonsense. 
right? unless you have an individual. Now, the argument can then be, who is the individual? Is Jesus really the individual spoken? That's a whole different discussion. But yeah, you, uh, I, I reject the, uh, the corporate entity of Israel uh, as uh, being the servant. It can't, can't be, can't function in the passages here. Yeah. That'd make a good journal article. It would be. Um, you again. Yes. <laughs> would you please explain, you mentioned the, uh, uh, the word until in uh, Isaiah 42.4, that he will not be disheartened or crushed until yes. he has established uh, justice in the earth. And I think that's important, like when Joseph keeps Mary a virgin until the birth of their firstborn son. Yeah. And I believe they had normal family life after that. But here, the until he has established justice in the earth, that makes the establishment of justice preceding the uh, disheartened and crushed. Is that what you said? Listen, the Hebrew is is, is complex. Mm -hmm. And you translate it as best as you can, which New American Standard has. Mm -hmm. Um, You have have an indicator of time. How it relates, how the time, the indicator of time relates to what happens in the future. You, all, it's, all it's indicating is at some point on the journey toward there will be some dejection, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't mean that he'll get to the destination and at that point he'll experience some dejection, okay? It means that on the journey he will be dejected, okay? So I don't have the Hebrew in front of me, so I can't actually argue the point. But that's a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Not one that I'm interested in, but uh, it's an interesting question. But, but, you know, the until there functions differently in Hebrew than it does in Greek. Okay, because in Greek the until indicates that you reach this point and then things change. Okay, but it's not that way in the, in the Hebrew. It's a, it's a different nuance. Thank you. I don't have the Hebrew text in front of me to go into that, but I've, I've looked at that. Yeah, before. which, of course, is the great cop-out for every... every th- I, don't have the, I don't have the Hebrew text. If I had a Hebrew text, I could tell you, but I, I can't tell. Yeah, well, I've got it back there in my laptop because that's how I've been following oh, okay. it, but I don't have it here. So. All right. Who had a question? Oh. I have a question about Parthenos. Uh, is it a compound question? No. Because I'm going to start charging extra, right? <laughs> Do you see an exegetical fallacy to associate Parthenos with the word behind Parthenon? You know, because the Parthenon, even though it has an omega rather than an omicron, was a place where unmarried women were kept. However, in that culture, in the Greek culture, whenever I'm going to use the the Latin term, the Vestal Virgins and stuff, that even though they were not touched by other people, they were touched by because they were uh, vicariously representing the goddesses, people were having sex with them. So some people make the argument that Parthenos means that they must be a virgin, uh, a technical term. They say that, that the whole argument with... I thought you told me this is not a compound question. No. All right. No, you're asking me, you're asking, the, the, the crux of your thing is, 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 par, is the Parthenon related to Parthenos? Is that... Uh, Yes. The, 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 god, the goddess, the Greek god, I was actually just there in May. I said hello to the Parthenon, uh, but I didn't schlep up. I looked at it from, you know, from Mars Hill, from uh, the Areopagus. Uh, um, the Parthenon is named after the, vir- the, the, the virgin goddess, right? It's Athena, I believe, right? And so uh, 
that's why it's called Parthenos. It's the house of the virgin. It has nothing to do with the vessel virgins, or uh, this is a Roman thing. Uh, it has to do with the, the goddess. So, uh, and, th- and this is where this comes into play, is you'll hear an argument, hey, look, you know, uh, uh, the uh, Matthew and the, the Christians, they're just taking uh, Greek mythology of the virgin goddess and they're applying it to Mary and, uh, again, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and they're trying to make an argument to discredit the virgin birth. But you just take it to the scripture. Don't wor- you, you let the Parthenon worry about itself, because as Paul said from the Areopagus, God does not dwell in temples li- made by human hands. So I would go to Acts 17 and leave it there. All right. Anyone else? We've shut the thing down. Oh, this guy in the back. Hiding in the corner. I see you. I do. I see you. Micro, yeah. Um, back to the Isaiah passage, Isaiah 42, 3, um, a bruised reed he will not break, um, describing the gentleness of Christ. Could you have the both the first and second coming of Christ mentioned in that passage? And how does that relate to Matthew 12 when... He uh, speaks of fulfillment, and he quotes the whole passage. Um, but is it merely application? Is Matthew really trying to apply it to a local situation, or is he saying that that part is fulfilled in Christ's first coming while still allowing for the second coming right. uh, usage? Remember, first of all, lecture number one. I know it seems like a million years ago now. Um, but lecture number one, you have various different kinds of uh, prophecies about the Messiah, facets. You have uh, first advent prophecies, second advent prophecies, first and second advent uh, prophecies that combine them, and then full gospel or full messianic resume uh, 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 prophecies that encompass his entire career, um, first advent in between, second advent, future. Um, and so... Here, yeah, we definitely have something. Obviously, he's going to be disheartened, but the result is going to be the coastlands are going to, and the nations are going to cut. So, yeah, so you have definitely a first and a second. Uh, at, but how Matthew is using it here is he's, yes, he's showing you that this is fulfilled. Uh, you have a guy just like described here, and just because part two has not yet been fulfilled doesn't mean that it won't be because part one is fulfilled. If part one is fulfilled, you can put your money on uh, a, a really sure bet that part two will be fulfilled as well. Or you can go to a, and say, okay, well, uh, it's, uh, Matthew's not using it as a literal fulfillment. He's using it as applicational fulfillment um, if you're really uncomfortable with saying part one and part two. There's a variety of ways that fulfilled is used, especially by Matthew, that are, are, are completely valid uh, and, uh, uh, and powerful. But I, I prefer to go with the literal. When I can, I go with literal unless I see, well, it can't be literal. All right, so that, that's out of bounds. All right. Scratch uh, the head or you want to see you. Okay. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of commentators of late trying to tie Revelation 4, uh, 3, 4, 5, seven spirits of God back into some of the Asiatic uh, prophecy passages. Can you comment on that at all or will you be touching on that later? I can't comment on it and I won't comment on it and I will not be commenting on it later uh, because I don't do that. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't make that connection. Some do and they're welcome too. 
but I don't make that connection, no. Um, all right, good. All right. Steve? Say right. Thanks. Well, right now we have an open-face sandwich for today. That's true. You like that Reuben we had last night? Yeah. yeah okay. And we'll close her up tonight. Okay, you know, great. That, mean, that means Mark's in the, is the meat in the middle. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that, 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 very good. Okay, we'll be back in uh, a little over 20 minutes and uh, be ready to go with uh, Mark's presentation, okay? Technically, we're supposed to start at 10 after, but, you know, we may, we went three minutes over, so we'll go three minutes before we start the next one. And for some of you, that, you know, that means 100 seconds. <laughs>